All right, if you would, take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Since today is Palm Sunday, um, I wanted to look at something that was very near to the cross, but also very significant in this last, um, these last days of Jesus' life. And so today we're going to look at one of the most beautiful pictures that happens and takes place in, in the Gospels um, from this woman. And we will, we're going to talk today about what it looks like to have a heart that is satisfied in Jesus. What, is it, what does it look like to find our hope and our rest and everything in Jesus? We just sung about that, but we will see that today. I wanted to say this as we began. I really miss you. So I've been, I've asked the Lord today to kind of help me picture where you sit in the room. And the problem is we have two services. And so when I do that, some of you are sitting on top of one another. But, um, but anyway, I, I just miss you and I just want you to know that, uh, that I can't wait for us to get back together. But I think God has something special for us today. And so let's, let, let's, let's lean in this morning and let's, let's get our hearts ready to receive what He has for us and that maybe our heart would be awakened the way this heart that we will see today that it's found this great satisfaction in Jesus. So by way of introduction this morning, I want to talk about um, this scene that we will see today of, of transformation and also one of thankfulness. So as we look at this story, it takes place in the last week of Jesus' life, and it's found in Matthew chapter 26, it's found in Mark 14, and it's also seen in John chapter 12. We will spend our time in Mark chapter 14, and it reveals much of what it looks like to be kind to Jesus and to love Him in a powerful way. And also, this is the very last act of kindness that would be done to Jesus right before his death. And we will see polar opposite responses to Jesus in the text. So it, um, there are three responses that we will see. One is from um, one who just extravagantly loves Jesus. We will also see the extravagance toward Jesus of those who hate him. And then we will also see the indifference of a heart that is following Jesus because personal gain and benefit in following Jesus is the motivation. And so we will see the beauty and the hatred and the indifference as we walk through that. But Mark really gives us this and records for us this beautiful expression. So let me give you the setting of the story before we read the text here in a moment. So the events that we're about to read take place in the city of Bethany, um, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, where Jesus is gathered. But then we're also going to see another scene just a few miles away in Jerusalem. Bethany was located on the southern slope of the Mount of Olives, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And Bethany seemed to be a place that Jesus frequented often. And it seemed to be a place that he had some good friends there. We know that he was really connected with uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And it seems to be a place that he probably, he and the disciples often spent time in their home. We, we get that picture earlier in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 10. And so one of the greatest miracles that Jesus does, as a matter of fact, maybe the greatest miracle Jesus does in the New Testament um, there while he was here before he ascended was the raising of Lazarus and that also took place in Bethany in John chapter 11. Now we will see this morning that there's a lot of preparation going on. Now God has been preparing for this hour to come for Jesus. But as people respond to Jesus and people have an idea about Jesus, there's a preparing that all three of these groups in our text today, they are preparing in their response to Jesus. Judas is preparing to betray Jesus. The religious leaders gathered in Jerusalem, they are meeting and they are preparing to get ready to try and figure out what are they going to do about Jesus where they resolve to kill him. And we will also see today that there's a woman whose name is Mary and she is preparing to do something incredibly beautiful. So some prepare to worship some prepare to attack who Jesus is and some prepare the way for personal gain in regard to Christ. So let's talk just for a moment about this scene of transformation 
and thankfulness. So Matthew and Mark inform us that Jesus has come to a mill in Bethany and he's at the home of someone called Simon the leper. Now we are forced to kind of assume a little bit um, because it's most likely that Simon is someone in whom Jesus has healed of his leprosy. Based on what we know about leprosy, Simon would not have been allowed to be in the town of Bethany. He wouldn't have been allowed to invite people over. He wouldn't have been allowed to serve food because lepers couldn't be around people. So it's obvious Simon, who's called Simon the leper, he has been healed likely by Jesus and he has invited Jesus to his house and they're sitting around the table as Simon hosts Jesus in his home. Now, John chapter 12 tells us another very interesting character who's also there that day, and it's Lazarus. And so Lazarus has been around again for a few days, and he is gathered at the table as well. Now, I thought about this today, and I thought about what an incredible, amazing scene this was at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. You have a former leper. You have a tax collector in Matthew. You have a a man who was dead for four days. The effects of Jesus' power to transform lives has literally filled the house. And everyone in the house is a living example of what Jesus can do in someone's life. It is a scene of the beauty of the working of the mercy and the grace of Christ. People with a past who have now become free because they know Jesus and they have been transformed by Him literally fill the room. And so it is a scene of transformation, life transformation. And by the way, Jesus still consistently does this today. All across our county, people watching this, have been transformed by the power and the working of Jesus Christ. So not only is it a scene of great transformation, it also becomes a scene that we experience when we consistently meet, and it is a scene of thankfulness. When you and I have been transformed by Christ, thankfulness becomes a key part of our lives. And so here we have a room where Jesus is gathered, a meal is being served, and so many people's lives have been transformed by Jesus. And so therefore, there's a response in the room of deep thankfulness. And if the Lord has ever done something in your life, you and I cannot help but be extremely thankful for what He has done and what He has brought to our lives. And if we could peer into every home today, we could give testimony and hear of our thankfulness of what Christ has done for us. And I am always grateful to be around people who have been transformed by Jesus. The spiritually, spiritually arrogant, they point fingers. And they look down, but those who know that we were nothing and now we have become His children, there's a heart of gratefulness and thankfulness that is amazing. And I think every one of us, honestly, should have this kind of heart based on what has happened. So this scene in Bethany that we're about to read about is just days away from Christ's death. And it is one of love where Jesus is surrounded by people who love Him. He loves them. Um, They care for Him deeply. He cares for them deeply. And I think it would have been amazing to just peer into that scene a couple of thousand years ago of a room full of people just incredibly transformed by the power of Jesus. But there's one in the room whose heart isn't fully engaged and we'll talk more about him in just a moment. So let's read the text this morning. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii 
and given to the poor and they scolded her. But Jesus said, you leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is I want to talk about scenes of the heart. And I want us to see what happens here. We see the scenes of the heart in verses 1 through 3. Let's just read it again so we can kind of get the, the full impact of, of what's happening and taking place. So one meeting is in, in Jerusalem. One is in Bethany. So 14.1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So that's taking place in Jerusalem. Now we go a few miles outside of Jerusalem in Bethany, near the Mount of Olives. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So before we get into the real core part of our study this morning, there's another scene from Bethany in Jerusalem where Jesus is the center of every bit of the conversation that is taking place there. And in that room, it is full of the leading religious leaders of the nation. They are ones who know the Scripture And Jesus is the very center of their conversation as well. So every conversation, every emotion, every uh, perspective on the Scripture, every reflection on what they have been teaching, none of it has to do with the honor and love toward Jesus. Every bit of it has to do with hating Jesus and being against Jesus. And this meeting that is taking place in Jerusalem reveals the deep darkness that can come to a heart that rejects what Christ can bring and rejects who He is. And it also is a reflection of the deep darkness that comes when we have a religion that is based upon man's rules and not upon what God wants to do. And the scene reveals the ugliness and the corruption that can happen in the hearts of people who reject Jesus. And the Bible has much to say about the condition of our heart. Jesus said it can be dull. Jeremiah said it can be incredibly deceitful. So let's look at this. Listen to this passage where Jesus describes man's heart. Matthew 13, 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart Jesus said has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would listen to what Jesus says and I would heal them if they would turn and there would be repentance so Jesus said the heart of man has grown dull because it's rejected his love and the hope that he offers. And then Jeremiah just said this very plainly. Jeremiah seventeen nine, The heart of man is deceitful above all things. You want to know what the, the darkest thing in the world is today? It is the heart of man that doesn't know Jesus. Where there's been no cleansing, there's been no righteousness of God and holiness of God that has entered a life. The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah writes, above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah asks. So these first three verses of Mark chapter 14 reveal what can be found in a heart. They reveal the scenes of the heart. One heart and a bunch of hearts can be full of hatred toward Jesus, but then there also can be a heart hearts that are just full of thankfulness and full of transformation so let me just contrast these for a moment and then we're going to look at mary's response to jesus 
So in Jerusalem, you have a room full of unchanged lives and hatred. In Bethany, you have a room full of love and changed lives. In Jerusalem, the religious leaders are operating in stealth and secrecy. In Bethany, everybody who loves Jesus is just expressing their love out in the open with nothing to hide, identifying themselves with Jesus. In Jerusalem, you have religious leaders who should love God and shouldn't fear people, and they're dominated by the fear of people. In Bethany, you have people who don't care what others say. They have been changed by Jesus. In Jerusalem, you have those who have never yielded to Jesus while He's taught, while He's healed. And then in Bethany, you have people who just can't do anything but yield and worship. The very last act that would be done by the religious leaders to Jesus was taking place in Jerusalem full of hatred and murder. The last act of kindness is taking place in Bethany. The religious leaders are content to stay away. In Bethany, there are people who won't miss a last chance to be in the presence of Jesus. So I want to, I want to ask a real honest question this morning. And I want you to re- examine your heart. Which room would you be in? Would you be in Bethany with those who have been transformed and you're just in love and, and grateful with what Christ has done for you? Or is there anybody listening and watching today who would be in Jerusalem attacking the words of Jesus, attacking the truth of Jesus, attacking the person of Jesus? And then you have Judas who is in the right room. He's in the right place. He's in Bethany. He's near the right person. And yet his heart is indifferent because he just wants gain. He doesn't want Jesus. So those are the scenes of the heart in our text. Now let's talk about what does it look like to have a satisfied heart. And let's read three, this, the second part of verse 3 and verse five, through verse 5 again. So let's just go well, 3 through 5. Let's just read 3 through 5. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask, and she poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why has this ointment been wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I want to take just some moments here, and let's just look at what, it, what does it look like to find Jesus as our rest, to find Jesus as our deep, deep love. And so Mary's expression, we know this is Mary from John chapter 12, of her deep love for Jesus. And we will see things that I believe are always true of those who deeply love Jesus. Now in those days, um, you didn't sit at a table. In those days, you would, you would, you would lay down like this. And so you would um, lay down with your left on your left arm like this and you would put your feet behind you and you would reach with your hand and you would eat this way and so this is what is happening and taking place and so if you were to come into the room and people were on the floor like that eating you would tower up over them and stand over them and so all around this table Simon the leper Lazarus the disciples they're all leaning on their left arms and they're reaching up to the table and they're grabbing food and they are eating it and Mary enters the room from somewhere and she comes in and she brings something with her of this great, great value and it becomes this amazing demonstrative expression of worship as she breaks the flask of pure nard, this this very, very costly and she, she pours it on Jesus and then we learn from John 12 that it also is on His feet and she worships him. So I want to share with us some principles this morning. What should it look like when we have found Jesus as our all in all? What does it look like? Well, I think Mary teaches us, first of all, this thing, that those who love Jesus consistently find themselves in the presence of Jesus. And so here she is. Jesus is there. She probably has been serving, but she just can't take it anymore. 
Her heart is overwhelmed and so she comes to worship him and to anoint him and to be near to him. John Stott once admitted something that we have all come to know if, if we were honest, but we're not always fully honest. But this is what he said. The thing I know will give me the deepest joy, namely to be alone and unhurried in the presence of God, aware of His presence, my heart open to worship Him is often the least thing that I want to do. And sadly, that can become the case for us. But I want to call us back and remind us today that King Jesus is worth worship and He wants us to draw near. And so here's Mary. She's got an opportunity. I think she senses something that is coming. Jesus has been talking about His impending death and you know word has gotten around. And so she's got an opportunity. She's got a moment and she wants to be in the presence of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we see Mary in the Gospels, she is doing the same thing over and over again. There are three glimpses of her in the Gospel. Guess where you find her every single time? at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has come to town. They have served a meal. Martha, her sister, is busy. And if you remember, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is teaching. He is pouring out truth. And and she is just sitting at the feet, soaking it in. When Lazarus has died, and it's been four days now, and Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, John 11 tells us this, that when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. And in in John chapter 12 and in this text here, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair And the text says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You see, for Mary, it didn't matter for her concerning the circumstance. She knew that she had to find herself at the feet of Jesus. So when the busyness of feeding the disciples, where did she find herself? At the feet of Jesus. And the heartache of her brother dying, and believing that Jesus could have been there, He could have done something about it, and He's going to do something about it. She just doesn't know it yet, but she falls at the feet of Jesus. And here she is. She has this opportunity, and we find her at the feet of Jesus again. She had to be there. So let me ask another honest question this morning. How is it with you and I? Do we know that we have to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus? And when we find ourselves consistently at His feet, that posture, that response to who He is begins to build into us a deep knowledge of Jesus where we fall more and more in love with Him. So the first thing we learn about a satisfied heart is it finds that that person finds themselves consistently in the presence of Jesus. Secondly, those who have found Jesus to be all satisfying, they love much because they have come to know this. They love Jesus much because they understand they have been loved much. When Mary steps into the room, she is breaking all kinds of cultural and religious practices that she should not be doing. She could come in and serve and and those things, but her heart is so enraptured by the glory of Christ that she doesn't care in the moment about any kind of cultural rules. So she comes in and she just has stopped whatever it was that she was doing and she comes in during the meal. She can't take it anymore and she gets the flask. She breaks it and breaks all kinds, not just the flask, but breaks all kinds of protocol and anoints the feet and the head of Jesus. Now I love this part of the story. Nobody has said, hey, Mary, it's time for you to come in and do your act. She just invites herself in and interrupts everything. And it just stops down in that moment as she pours her heart out to Jesus. So why did she do this? 
Why did she just burst in and not wait until all the people had left where she could have some time alone with Jesus in the house? It wouldn't cause so much of a scene. So why did she do this? Well, if you've ever been there, you know what that's like. When your heart is overwhelmed with the greatness and the glory of Jesus, you can't wait. You must worship. And I believe there are two great reasons and primary reasons why she invites herself in and comes in. And I think one is simply this. She knew that she was loved much. You see, you and I can only love God much because we have been loved much. Listen to these words from John. 1 John four nineteen. We love because He first loved us. And I believe Mary became convinced of this. I believe she became captivated by it. She knew that she was loved much by Jesus. And there was no logical reason she had, she had settled in her mind why she shouldn't come near and love Him much because she had been loved much. And the fact that Jesus loved her and affirmed to her that we were invited and we are invited to come near and to be intimate with Christ. So one reason, she draws near. She knows this. She has loved much. It's a reason you and I can draw near. And secondly, she knows because we're loved much. And I've touched on it already. And so therefore, because we are loved much by God, therefore He says, you come on. You come near to me. You draw near. She came in this way because she was convinced that she would be completely welcome to worship in the manner in which she did. If she wasn't welcome, then Jesus would have said, whoa, 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 stop, stop. You can't be doing this. And if she calculated, brought out the calculator, I don't know what they used back then, Abacus, I don't know what the deal was, but if she were to kind of pull it out and kind of go, how, you know, calculate what this might look like to other people, then she would have concluded, well, you know, I really can't come in right now and do this. But when she thought about, listen to these words, when she thought about how Jesus would view what was in her heart, she knew that he wouldn't say, stay away. Just wait until everybody's gone and let's do this at midnight when it's much quieter. He doesn't pull her aside later and say, hey, next time you need to think this through a little bit more and be a little more mindful of everybody else in the room. You know, we were eating at the time. He doesn't do that. He doesn't tell her, you know, James and Bartholomew were a little uncomfortable about what you did. He just doesn't stop it. He doesn't say anything. And here's why. James, Jesus' half-brother, writes these words. Draw near to God and He will what? He will draw near to you. So she, she knows this incredible reality that she can come. And I want to say this to us this morning. Don't creep in. Because I think far too often we kind of think, well, does God want me to come near? You know, I've really struggled this week. And I just, I want to say this today. If we are His people... And we have been redeemed by Him. We are to come in, not creep in. We are to come in, draw near, pour our heart out, and just lay it down. God God knows we've had a tough week spiritually. God knows if we haven't loved Him greatly during the week. But come in and lay that down and just say, God, I, I haven't, I'm just not overly motivated, whatever the case may be, and just lay our lives down in honesty and in, in truthfulness. Because that's how... We worship and don't creep in because that creeping in and I stay in the corner, I stay away is never going to bring us deep relationship with Jesus. Now think about the cross and the resurrection with me. The cross and the resurrection did not happen so that we would be kept away or stay back in a corner or to approach God with trepidation. Instead, one of the great effects of the cross is the door was opened so that you and I could draw near to Jesus and to come as close as we possibly can. And by the way, she is allowed to do on this evening, 2,000 years ago, everything that we see here. And Jesus affirmed every act, every moment as good. Not an interruption, 
not craziness, not following protocol. He affirmed it as good. You see, he wants his people near. Because he knows what's best for us is to be near to who he is. He will always welcome authentic worship grounded in spirit and truth. Well, we've looked at two aspects. Let's look at the, the next one. What should we bring when we come? Well, we should bring our best. So she brings this alabaster flask. It was something that resembled white marble. It was very beautiful. Inside of it was this ointment. Um, the, the word is nordos. Um, it's a perfume that came from the banks of the Ganges River in India. Uh, the Romans and the Greeks um, used it a lot during that time period. It was red-tinted ointment drawn from a plant. It was also at times not only as an ointment, it was also used as a perfume in the embalming process as well. It was so expensive that mainly only the wealthy could afford to purchase it. And it's still, as a matter of fact, they make things from this plant still today. So the Greek text tells us this is what it was. It came from this plant. Uh, the Greek word for, for um, was it imitation? You know, we could go down to CVS and buy some perfume, but it's not quite in cologne. It's not quite the real stuff. It's an imitation. And so this was, the text here says, this was genuine. This was not imitation. So what she brought was the real stuff. It was undiluted. It was pure. It was just totally the right, real stuff from India. It was genuine. And then the text tells us, that it was something that was costly. So what she brought to worship Jesus that day was an earthly wealth and a quality that was unmatched. This was a special perfume to her that she owned and she had, she had bought. So let me just remind us, when we come in to Jesus and we come to worship Him, we want to come in and we want to bring our best. Does it mean that we bring all of our money in and our most prized possessions? That's not what the text is teaching. It's what Mary did there. But if the Lord ever prompted us to do something like that, then absolutely that is exactly what we should do. But the point of the text is this, really, and fundamentally, is that when we come to worship... We come and we bring our best and we come ready to glorify Jesus and all that He has done for us. So what did she do with this when she came in? Well, she broke the neck. So she broke the neck of this white marbled flask um, that was there so that she could pour it out and she broke it and she broke it in a way where it couldn't really be poured. She broke it where it just would fall out and it would just fall upon Jesus. It wasn't just going to be a little drop that would be there. It would be just all of it would pour out. And so a question is, arises as why did, why did she not slowly pour it and why did she break all of it? Well, there was an Eastern custom in those days that if a vessel like a cup or something like that was used by a highly distinguished guest, then they would destroy that so someone lesser than that person would never drink out of that cup again. So there could be some imagery there that she is saying this, I am anointing Jesus and I'm considering Him the greatest of all and I'm giving something genuine, I'm giving something costly, I'm giving something from my heart and I'm going to pour all of it out. Not just a drop, I'm not going to pace myself in worship, but I'm going to pour it all out. And so we bring our best to Jesus because we know He loves us in such a powerful way. The next thing we see about those whose hearts are satisfied is that I believe that this flask where she breaks it and empties everything out of it is a representation of her heart. There was also a custom in the East, and we know this from reading the Bible, that when you, when you came to someone's house as a guest, they would, they would put a couple of drops of perfume or cologne um, on the clothing uh, to, just, to just be in those days you didn't have ready showers and so it kind of made things smell better and all of that and so likely this has happened and taken place when Jesus came the Simon the leper has probably put a few drops of, of uh, perfume on Jesus 
But Mary takes it a bit further than what was normally practiced. See, what we see here is an expression of the wholeheartedness of her devotion in the act. As she does this, she doesn't calculate the cost of what she is doing. The flask, I think, in the sense, pictures her heart. And what she was doing is, is it represents, she was pouring everything out to honor Jesus and to worship Him. For Mary to give it all, ultimately, was nothing at all to do. It wasn't that big a deal. She didn't see the act as loss, but she saw it as gain. Do you hear that? She did not see what she did in pouring out this costly thing to worship Jesus as some kind of loss. She wasn't going to regret it later on. She wasn't just going to pour out a dab or a few drops. She was going to pour everything out. And she is a symbol, I believe, of those who cannot hold back their affection and become a picture of those who have an unrestrained love for Jesus. And she empties the contents of the flask, picturing the emptying of her heart and her love for Jesus. Here's the next thing I want us to see connected with this is there should be in our lives at times extravagant expressions for the glory of Jesus when she came that day and she broke the flask and she anointed the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair she was making a statement about the condition of her heart and how she saw Jesus it was for him alone It wasn't for anybody else in the room. It was for him alone. And in her actions, she made a few statements. One statement was this. It pictured her commitment to him. How committed she was to him. There was no going back. When you break that and you empty it on someone, there's no going back. You don't put that together and put the ointment back in the flask. You empty it out. It's it's to be used. And this is a picture of just unconditional devotion and complete devotion no going back no regrets do you and I live with regrets in our view of walking with Jesus or is it worth it for us so not only is it a statement of her commitment to him but it's also a statement about her view of herself in doing this to Jesus She is demonstrating that Jesus meant more to her than her own reputation. She sacrificed her pride. She broke protocol to anoint Him. She was saying, I love you so much that I don't care what anybody in the room thinks about my expression of love to you. Now in those days, it reveals to us in John 12 that the women wore their hair up. The only women who didn't wear their hair up were prostitutes and so there in front of a bunch of men she's anointed Jesus she lets her hair down this stuff is on Jesus's feet and she wipes his feet with her hair John 12 tells us and it was at this point that she just lets her hair down and she doesn't care what anybody thought for what she had to do was give this extravagant expression of honesty and her love for Jesus The other thing that we must see here is that the only ones who washed feet in those days were who? Slaves. So she was saying to Jesus as she anoints him, you are the master. I am the slave. I am the servant. And she yields to the glory of who he is. Such deep Humility, and I believe worship always flows from a deep humility. And I believe that worship always flows to also when we see that He is the one we must worship. Now, let me stop here for a moment. If this becomes a picture of our life and our response to King Jesus and our love for Him, you and I just need to know this whether you're eight, whether you are 14, or 18 or 28 or in your 70s 
Not everybody's going to get extravagant love to Jesus. We're not going to get it. People are going to go, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. Don't you have a backup plan to what you're doing? Or whatever the case may be that they say. And here's what I want to say. Authentic love for Jesus. Authentic passion for Jesus. Authentic worship of Jesus. Will always be greatly misunderstood. And that's seen in verses 4 and 5. Look at it again. So there were some, this is beautiful what she has done, but there were some who were in the room who said to themselves, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And how loud they scolded her. They got onto her. Judas in John chapter 12 it reveals to us that he's the one who had the biggest issue with their actions. But obviously, according to this, some of the others joined in as well. You see, Judas carried around a calculator. Mary did not when you looked at Jesus. Judas carried around a calculator measuring how much of my heart am I going to give to Jesus so that I still have some stuff for me. Mary just didn't carry a calculator. She just was going to give all of her heart to him. And so Judas with calculator in hand, he knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. That was true about Judas. He could calculate it. He knew the price of everything, but he knew the value of nothing. And unfortunately, there are far too many Christians like that as well. Mary's act of worship brought joy to Jesus and it brought malice to the heart of Judas. This word in verse 4 that says waste means utterly destroyed, something that has been ruined and perished. They looked at the ointment on Jesus' head. They could smell what the room smelled like. She's at His feet wiping with her hair what's been poured on him and they say what a waste of resource it's all good for nothing they missed the beauty of the moment and sometimes in our lives we will have people who will not understand why we love God the way we do so in private or in public they will ridicule our love and our passion and our life with Christ And ultimately, they treated her, listen to this, critical to hear this. Ultimately, they scolded her because they didn't have the same love of Jesus that Mary had. And they just in that moment didn't see Jesus as having the kind of worth that deserved what had just been done to him in a beautiful way. She was willing to give all she had in response to Jesus. Nobody else in the room yet. Now later, 10 of these men would die as martyrs. But in the moment right there, they were not quite there. See, they didn't think he was worthy of the same kind of expression of love that she deemed Jesus worthy of. And she just pours it out. And I want to remind you and I, if you're passionate about Jesus... And maybe you have a parent, you're a student, you maybe have a parent and you feel called to ministry and you've got a parent saying you need a backup plan, but you know you've been called to ministry and I just want to say to you, go with God. You don't need a backup plan. If you're called to be a doctor, called to be a nurse, you're called to be an accountant, you're called to be a teacher, you don't need a backup plan. If that's the calling that God has and that's the place He's going to place you to do ministry, then go for it. And to be passionate for him as you teach as you lead you see it's never a waste to pour out our heart and to authentically follow God people will misunderstand it and that's just going to be the reality let's look at this so how did, what did Jesus think of it all well look at verse 6 let's look at the Savior's perspective so they're scolding her, getting on to her. What a waste. What are you doing? And Jesus said, you leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done, they missed it. 
She's done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus saw it completely different than they saw it. He said, look, you're always going to have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go and do something good to the poor. But I've been telling you, and he has been telling them, I'm about to leave. In just a few days, he will be hanging on a cross. And for them, it will appear it's all over. And so he says, listen, you're just going to have me for a little bit longer. She has, look what it says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So how does Jesus see what she did? Here's how he saw it. He affirms unashamed love for him. He just affirms it. And he calls it beautiful. He calls it amazing. It moved him. And he tells these men to back off of the criticism of Mary. He affirms her unashamed love. Secondly, Jesus, when we love him authentically and people don't get it, he sees the beauty that nobody else can see. This word beautiful thing in verse 6 means a goodness. In the Greek, it means a goodness seen on the outside as it strikes the eye. A beautiful, pleasing goodness. It's one of those things sometimes that you see when you're out and somebody just does something that's beautiful and, and, it, and, and it strikes the eye and it warms the heart and it moves you and you tell other people about it. And, and, and this is what Jesus said. It caught his eye. Not only did it, did it, yes, caught his eye. It's been on his head. It's been on his feet. But he saw it differently. He, it caught his eye from the standpoint of it was beautiful. And you see, there is a danger for every one of us who knows Jesus that we get to a place where we limit and we define what a beautiful expression to God becomes. And when we do that, we become blind to what is truly authentic at times and sometimes truly incredibly awesome. So he affirms unashamed love. He sees the beauty that others cannot see. And he affirms those, verse 7 tells us, who embrace opportunity. Hey, you're going to have the poor always, but you're not always going to have me. And for many of us, we live under the plague of the next blank, whatever it is. Mary seems to have understood and made the most of the opportunity that night. And one of the things that we say often in our own lives, you know, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, going, to, I'm going to really get it right and I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to be passionate with God and things are going to be different with me. And we say this, you know, next week, next year, next time, this fall, you know, when the coronavirus thing's over, I'm going to, I'm going to get back and I'm going, to, I'm going to do this this year. And this kind of thinking leads to things where it really ultimately never happens because today is the day right in your home right before your media stuff today is the day for you and I to decide that this is the moment that we have and he's worth our love and our devotion see many people have opportunities before them that they never embrace and I just want to say let's embrace it right now Jesus affirms it he sees the sensitivity in our hearts. Verse 8. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She knew Jesus and she knew the disciples. So she would be aware of his speaking about his impending death. It would have been a topic of conversation among this community of Jesus followers. And Mary lives out her faith as an example that she knew Jesus was worth her worship she couldn't stop Jesus' death but she could do what she could on that day and so what could she do on that day she could anoint him for his burial just a couple more things verse 9 says and truly I say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her the last thing he does his perspective the Savior's perspective is he weaves our lives into the unfolding of what he is doing in the world. He was not. Here we are, listen to this. Here we are 2,000 years later. 
2,000 years later. And Jesus was not going to let the world forget what everybody in the room that day saw. We are telling the story again. You see, authentic expressions of love for Jesus are always used by Him to impact other people that continue to go forth and do things in other people's lives. I want to close with this because there was a sickness in the room that day in verse 10 and 11. And we'll close with this. So Judas, look with me. Judas sees everything that's been done. He's heard Jesus say, stop it, leave her alone, quit scolding her. This is beautiful. Well, it turned Judas's heart. This is where he's like, I'm not really into this anymore. So verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas leaves that scene of worship. Hears Jesus' affirmation of it all. Smells the aroma of the perfume. Sees the love. Hears the truth telling And he goes and he gets for himself some money to betray Jesus. Instead of seeking an opportunity to affirm Jesus' greatness, he seeks an opportunity now to betray because Judas was unmoved by it all. And I would say to every one of us, beware of the heart of Judas. Why did he do this? Well, he was following Jesus for his own agenda and his own way. And it's nothing but self-centered thinking. And his response clearly reveals that Judas could not calculate and see the worth of Jesus' glory. You know, he's one of these great enigmas. Walked with Jesus for three years. He went out on two short-term missionary trips. First time when they went out. And then he went out when the 70 went out. And just... Just he, he preached, cast out demons. He did a lot of different things, but he never yielded his heart. And here's why. When a person has another agenda for Jesus, other than Jesus being the sovereign Lord of all things, then it's easy to betray because Jesus isn't becoming who we want him to be. And that was the case with Judas. So what do we do? What's our response? Well, our response is this. Can't be like Judas. Can't be like the religious leaders. Our response must be like Mary. You are worth my genuine worship. You are worth it all. Let's pray.